Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. On this episode, Deanna is joined by several other immigration and refugee attorneys in Canada, including Laura Best, Erica Olmsted, Aaron Roth, and Kamalji Carla Hall, to discuss compassion fatigue and refugee law. This is a wide-ranging topic, and what they discuss goes beyond traditional work-life balance talk and into the specifics of dealing with the grind of being a refugee and immigration lawyer, facing consistent examples of injustice, and generally how to cope with what can be a very demanding practice. On a podcast note, we have started a YouTube channel to post the video recordings of our podcasts. If you search on YouTube Deanna Stephen Borderlines or Borderlines, you should be able to find it. I've also been posting and will continue to post the video of these recordings on my Twitter X account. Uh, the username is at Smurens, S-M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S. Uh, once again, if you like the podcast, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast, and I hope you enjoy okay so um i wanted to bring you all together to have a session talking about compassion fatigue i sort of feel like we could 
all um, the fashion, like running a refugee practice in the apocalypse, um, which is kind of what it feels like right now for me. Um, and I thought uh, probably it would feel um, you'd have similar feelings um, around the table. But I just kind of wanted um, everybody to kind of share their thoughts. Um, it, for me, it feels like kind of a lonely time practicing. I think that it was always kind of hard to practice in, in this area. And I know all of us have really focused our practices in um, working in some of the, um, you know, what most people consider the, the, the challenging type of cases. We're all attracted to the type of cases where uh, stakes are very high and uh, there tends to be a lot of um, a lot of trauma, a lot of um, just very high stakes. Um, but uh, I think that for me anyways, during the, the pandemic, uh, what was stripped away was a lot of the, the group dynamic and just having people to bounce ideas off of uh, and just having that support network present and around us all of the time. And so we've kind of burrowed away into our private little caves and it's started to come back for me at least a little bit, like every once in a while now I'll go out to an event and I'll talk to other people. But I think as I do that, I realize how much I've missed it. And um, and anyways, I just wanted to do a session to share like how we are managing. And I think because also we're all fairly uh, senior into our practice and are doing this not just as newcomers, I'm reflecting back a fair bit on the train wreck that was how I was doing this at the beginning of my career and how close to like absolute burnout I was all the time as a junior practitioner, what I thought was normal um, and just some of the problems and just thinking that um, as a conversation among the five of us about, um, you know, about what we experienced at that time and what kind of strategies we use now, I think that there might be some insight for people who are doing this without the the many, many years of experience running this type of a practice. So anyways, I just wanted to open it as a, as a very like informal discussion type of thing. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, how else, how's everybody feeling? What is, what is everybody thinking is the stuff that works best for them? Um, you know, what are some of the, the, the war stories about how things have been, like what are the biggest challenges people have, have experienced in the past and how they've managed those? If I can jump in, um, I'm reflecting back, it's been over 30 years. And when I started out, I don't think there was this terminology or awareness of trauma or vicarious trauma, or, you know, just being <clears throat> very sensitive to the client's needs. I think naturally we were when you're drawn to this type of clientele. But I think when I reflect on when I was younger, I think I was more stoic. And maybe it's because you come out of law school, like when you're a lawyer, and you just, you know, you're hearing your client tell, tell a story and write it down and you go represent them. But I think over the years, and especially now where this language of trauma, trauma-informed practice is just more common. Uh, people are becoming educated because law schools certainly didn't teach it, right? They certainly didn't teach it. And it's been in the last few years, I can say for myself, where I've recognized, you know, I'm exhausted. I don't want to take another file. And that happened to me, maybe it was the middle of the pandemic, where I had to say to my assistant, we need to put a pause on taking some of these files because I don't think I have capacity 
and I don't think I'm going to do a good job. So then I would refer and I'd probably put your names out there for other people that I know that can do this work competently. But I think my insight and awareness as to the impact of this type of work didn't come until much later in my career. I probably did feel exhausted even then, but in a different way. Because I was being a lawyer, you know, and I, was, I thought I was doing my job. And I think my insight came much, much later as to the heaviness of this work and the toll it takes on us as lawyers. Well, that's just sort of my reflection. I think sometimes too, uh, when I when I sometimes am working with clients too, where they're facing difficult circumstances, sometimes I find myself thinking, um, how can I say this is too much when their problems would seem so much worse than the like me being burnt out, you know? And so, uh, you know, this was something that was very hard for me to establish in terms of boundaries, like for me to say, I'm too tired, I'm having a hard time. Um, you know, I was always comparing the degree of my burnout with the degree of their problems. And I think that that always, especially when I was young, when I was like, uh, you know, how can I say no when they don't have those choices? And so I think uh, that was a really hard muscle for me to develop earlier on. I see a lot of heads nodding that that is a familiar instinct. But um, I really thought that like drawing boundaries was like a theoretical thing that people said from the outside. I didn't actually understand that if I kept crossing them, that I was actually of no value to anybody. <laughs> and so uh, that was something that I learned very like, uh, like in a painstaking kind of a way over years. And I think that that comparison thing is incredibly dangerous. And, and I had that very much in the beginning. I don't think I had a lot of compassion for my own needs uh, when I was comparing them against uh, the needs of our clients. And I, I think there was always this concern that if if you don't take it, there's only a handful of people you can refer them to. And, you know, everyone's really busy. And it's this idea that, well, if I don't take it, then what's going to happen to this person? And uh, so it's so easy to, to to set up boundaries, but then to constantly cross them. And um, so I think even just within the past few years, though, I think there's been a much bigger dialogue around boundaries and what that means and how important it is. And I think especially after doing it for so many years, you reach a point where um, you see a lot of good lawyers leaving the profession and you realize that that's where you are, that you are either going to put boundaries in order to keep doing it yeah. or you're, you're not going to be able to, to keep doing it. And so it <laughs> kind of comes to a head at a certain point. And I think being a younger lawyer you have, you're so driven by, you know, this, the sense of everything that needs doing. And, and it's easy to just um, completely put yourself on the back burner. Um, so anytime I'm talking to a new lawyer, that's something I'm constantly saying is I'll see these incredible things they've done for their client. I'm like, just make sure to take a break, put up boundaries. Cause like, we want to keep you here in this profession. And at this pace, you're not, you're not, <laughs> you're not going to be able to keep at it. Yeah, for sure. Sometimes like your success can be 
um, your downfall. Actually, somebody once said that to me. That this was BJ Caruso a long time ago. Said that your strength is your weakness, Deanna. Your strength is your weakness. And I was like, oh, oh, right. Because like you keep thinking, well, I can just squeeze a little bit harder. More juice will come out. It always does. But at some point, like if you keep treating yourself in that way, like you will get to the point where nothing more comes out. <laughs> it's not a place you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this was something that like, for me, at least the pandemic really brought to a head that when we were, you know, at home, we had the kids at home. I have two little kids. They're still little, but they were even smaller then. And it was so obvious to me that there was no way I could keep doing it the way I had been doing it. It was not going to work. I couldn't have kids at home and manage like making them feel safe in an inherently unsafe world and caring for myself and also burning it at both ends at work. So it's funny that you say like, how are you doing? And I feel like mental health wise, I'm probably the best I ever have been in this work because I am so aggressively, fiercely self-protective in a way that I absolutely wasn't at the beginning. And I feel like I now understand in my bones that I cannot fix everything. And it is not my fault when applications get denied. And there's only so much I can do in an inherently unfair system. And so I feel like I've had to forgive myself and like just dig so deep for that self-compassion to say no and to like be okay with the no's and to be okay letting things go that I can't do. And Mm -hmm. so I feel like it was interesting that the pandemic (laughs) in that way really highlighted that it it was, it was super unsustainable. I mean, for my part, for better or worse, I hit some of my most emotionally taxing cases, probably in the first two years of my career. Um, Very, very serious mental health conditions intermingling in. And I had to very quickly figure out how to control my communications because the more you communicate, the more they communicate and you end up in this cycle that it's just, there's no end. And that's probably not healthy for any of us. So very quickly on for myself and for my clients, I started looking at support people who in my client's life was their support person who in my life Mm. could I unload to in a safe environment in a trusted environment because that means you just need to say it out loud to put it behind you but as we hit the pandemic I knew absolutely without a doubt I could not be locked down at home there is zero possibility in my mind that I could have been doing this work sitting in my home Mm. because I've always made a really strong separation I'm not trying to take work home because I want that separation. I want to be able to say, this is my brain at work. These are my clients at work. These are the stresses I have at work. And it's almost an unloading as I commute myself home for the day. 
Me too, Erin. I feel that one so, so much. Like I was actually watching one of those little CBC pieces and Adrienne Arsenault was talking about the fact that when she went out in the field, um, she would actually bring up like a set of clothing that she would actually carry in a plastic bag that it was like sealed off from the experiences she was having in that place. And that when she got ready to go home, she would like change into that set of clothing and like leave her experiences behind. And I could really relate to that. Like for me, the commute into work is when I like leave my home life, go into my work world, and then I can come home at the end of the day and again, make that separation. And so like, so yeah, that, that commute, it's like, it's a journey, you know, (laughs) it's like, and so, uh, yeah, I I really, that really spoke to me. I I agree with you guys. Um, It's funny. I think I lasted a week at home during the pandemic and just kept, then started coming into the office. No one was here. But it was like you said, Erin, that sort of like, this is work. And then I go home, I've got four kids and a dog and, you know, life is happening at home. So I need to be turned on in a different way there. I need to leave the stuff behind. So it's funny. I'm the exact opposite. I love working from home. I will never work from an office again. I do Mm. not like commuting. I like being surrounded. I like having my tea close by. (laughs) I like having... If I am going to go out, then it's like to do exercise or to do something productive. And so, yeah, I like obviously with the kids at home, that was not really sustainable. But now they're old enough that they go to junior kindergarten and elementary school. So I love my house is quiet. I finally have it to Mm -hmm. myself and all my things are close by. So I get it. Yeah, I know. And it's funny. I don't know. As I get older, too, I've just sort of leaned into being like, I am just going to do what works for me. And it doesn't matter if I am the only person it works for. It's like it works for me. And that's okay. For sure. But I agree, Erin, having having like sounding boards. I don't I don't know how people would do it in solo practice or any sort of practice if they didn't have people to fetch to about the their days or their clients or the number of people I, you know, can call and <laughs> give them $1 to, you know, um, reflect on a file with me. Yeah. Even though now I'm in solo practice, I feel like I'm always on the phone with people about it because it's too, it's way too much to carry alone. Well, and I think talking about different people's different preferences, it really brings to mind for me just how important it is to, um, just be able to really be connected with yourself and your own instincts and what you need. Because I think there have been times in this profession where I've been so burnt out or so just in a case that I become very disconnected from myself and I'll, right. I'll forget to eat. I like, I'll, I'll be working on something in this cave for, for two days and I'll come out of it completely exhausted and burnt out. And I've really started making like a very concerted effort to not be doing that. I like, I, I need to be able to be able to do this work and kind of be embodied and listening to what I need. Um, and for me, it is actually a mix of working from home and coming to the office and um, it's different based on different days, but I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I think that that's really key, though, being able to tune in and being like, okay, where am I at right now? What's working? What isn't working? Can I reevaluate? Where am I at? How do I? Because I, too, have that issue where, like, I burn down the, like, body brain 
communication road. And uh, it serves me well in the sense that like, I forget about my appetite. I forget about my, <laughs> my need for sleep. I forget about all sorts of other stuff during the duration of that time. But it, it, it's not, um, it's not something that, uh, that works on a long term basis, for sure. I have a very specific question for all of you, um, which is, um, I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, but sometimes when you're like facing like difficult decision, followed by difficult decision, followed by frustrating policy, like how do you deal with the anger? Call a friend, <laughs> vent. <laughs> I think you and I have done that a number of yeah, times. Yeah, 100% we have, Camel G. <laughs> and strategize and figure out there's one other another way to work around it um i mean you know i i've in my practice i've taken certain initiatives and it's taken me a long time to get them done but i just keep it's like i don't know just keep going at it even though it may be frustrating but i i it's important to me but i think when there's that anger and that frustration with just the system not working the way it should be um it's to me it's I reach out to a lifeline and talk talk it out and um, then move forward that lifeline to me has been invaluable yeah when I went into this work you when I was a junior lawyer like I was really prepared for you know the vicarious trauma and hearing client stories like I'd been a member of Amnesty International since I was like 10 I knew what happened in the world I was like ready for the literal war stories and I wasn't ready for how utterly soul-destroying it was to see the Canadian government response <laughs> to suffering and trauma. Like I, every time that's what mm -hmm. crushed me, right? Like a negative decision, a cruel board member, a irrational federal court decision. Like anyway, so I, I was really prepared and I felt like I had my toolkit ready for listening to client stories and I wasn't prepared for how disturbing it would be to work with a system that's so lacking Alice. in compassion. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly why I'm at Laura. And that's the one that I find is right now my biggest barrier that um, I don't know what to do with that feeling of sadness and like, um, like, I don't know, it's hard not to get down about that. It's not, I mean, people always say to me, like, isn't it so hard to listen to those stories every day? And actually that's not the part that I find difficult at all. Um, I feel like the humanity that you hear from other people and the experiences that they've suffered, that's not the difficult part. It's trying to explain to them how the system is going to deal with them that I find super challenging. And again, I'm seeing a lot of nods that other people feel that that is a lot of what um, the, the challenge is. And uh, yeah. That, that I, I, totally resonates is like so when you when you talk about dealing with anger for me like if it's a big picture issue that's that tends to be fine I can just do exactly what I just described I can dig my heels in I trust you know the the layers of appeals that eventually if there's like a case mm. that I really think I needs to win and deserves to win I can tell a client that you know we can probably get there I can't guarantee it but we probably can but it's the littler things, the decisions that you see from the Canadian government, whether it's DOJ, CBSA, the courts, where, it, and it's often some of the smaller things where, where you're trying to just describe, like, 
this is how this needs to work. And these are all the reasons. And the, the adversarial system just provides no room for them to accept that, you know, this is actually a really exceptional case. And you should really look at this one as compared to maybe the the, the 20 others that we, we have an application pending for, like whether it's even just like a work permit for a refugee, when we get a refused work permit and there is no one I can go to and this person needs to work, and they're, they're just sitting there and yet there is just, just walls and like it's those little things where there's no humanity and no place to go find um, someone to listen to that are so frustrating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it was the first time I found myself counseling somebody not to come to Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, we get into admissibility work overseas and the futility of dealing with any visa officer to get a decision. You know, we're going to go to the federal court. I think we'll be successful. We're going to go back to the visa office. I don't think we're going to be successful. And the first time you found yourself telling somebody, let's go to federal court and rather than seek reconsideration, let's seek a termination of your application. Quash the decision and wash your hands. And that's a very weird place to be in to say that no matter how we position this person, no matter what discretion we think should be utilized, it's not going to happen. And it's despite the facts, like the law, the law says this stuff should be considered, but the the way the, the, the government will respond to cases as they pingball it. So they say, oh, yeah, you you can go here for relief. You can go here for, for relief. And they're always pushing it down the line so that when you look at it big picture, the law says this, this is supposed to be considered. There's supposed to be a mechanism. And yet in practice, they, they, they preclude that. And it's without thinking it through down the line because they're just in the adversarial system defending their position and trying to win that case. And it, it happened like a good example is the safe third country agreement case where they, they won that. They said there's safety valves available. And then we saw people being deported and CBSA saying they didn't have the discretion to decide a TRP. So it, it's little examples like that. And I guess your mm-hmm. question was not was how do we deal with with this sort of anger? And I guess it's um, sharing it right now, being in community, yeah. I, I think, is yeah. a huge part of that. Yeah. Yeah, I, think, I know, Deanna, I mean, we talked about, we talked, like, for me, I found the announcement on the, the special program for Ukraine, I that that was crushing. Like, mm-hmm. it was so wonderful for Ukrainians, and so phenomenally tragic that the Canadian government has the tools in its toolkit, and is only willing to use them for certain nationalities. Yeah. Like, yeah, that, I agree. That just cracked my heart in two after having like I personally sponsored two separate Syrian families with my friends like all the Afghans that we were hearing from all the flooding of our inbox from Afghani women like it was just so upsetting when they announced that and I don't really know what to do with it other than to like explicitly call it out as like an inherently racist unfair system that has been built to prioritize certain immigrants and systemically. But it's hard, hard again, like, I feel because like I'm getting more <laughs> radical as I get older. I, I don't know how anyone gets conservative as I get older. I feel like I'm I the exact opposite. But this is what I mean. Like, I don't like, I don't feel like an angry person. I feel like I'm driven by compassion as opposed to anger. But at the same time, I find myself all the time, like, <gasps> 
<laughs> like apoplectic with these sorts of things. And I don't wish for my response to be something that opposes this act of compassion toward people from Ukraine. It's the contrast between that and the people that are coming from Afghanistan, from Syria, from Eritrea, Ethiopia, I mean, you name it, you know, and so, um, you, you know, and, uh, and just, just dealing with the decisions that we get, you know, um, the kinds of refusals that we do receive on a day to day basis. But I, I also think that, you know, and we have all spoken separately, um, you know, on an ongoing basis about how you just kind of pick your lane. And I know Erica and I have talked about like how for her, it's like picking a big, a bigger decision. Like, I mean, the type of work that um, like on the Mason decision, just talking about how the department has like, keeps enlarging and looking for bigger admissibilities to impose. And like, for me, it's just like, you know, working at the very, very grassroots level. Like to me, the idea of taking Supreme Court of Canada litigation is just like completely outside of the scope of what I have capacity for. But, you know, just like working at the very basic level of getting the basis of claim form filled in, that feels okay for me right now. But just like figuring out what is the one thing that you can do that makes you feel okay, like that's sort of my remedy. So I don't know, that sort of seems to be like everyone, it's like back to what we were saying before, everyone finds their own thing that feels like their self for how you deal with the, the, um, the accumulation of frustrations, and you just carry on, keep doing it day to day. And it just, that's your remedy. <laughs> I find myself going into really deep, complex cases, and it'll consume me for a year or so. Mm. And then I have to step back. I have to make a really deliberate decision, possibly for the next year. I can't do it again right now. I don't have the capacity. And I mean, I think I'm going through a phase, and Eric and I have talked about this, that I feel I'm actually best positioned in refugee hearing work right now. Hmm. The idea of just sitting there and chatting with these people about their lives and presenting their cases and going to their hearings, mentally, I have the capacity for that. I do not have the capacity for complex litigation today. Mm-hmm come back to me next year. But I just, I find myself always in these waves of being like, I hit a wall. We're going to go down. And honestly, working with refugees. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Brings me mental joy to go through the process, to go to the hearings, generally very good outcomes. And it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of invigorating me to the practice again. And so I'll go mm-hmm. through this for a little while and then I'll take on a challenge. 
So maybe then this is the question. Does everybody keep reinventing themselves? I know you have, Laura, you know, like. Yeah, so I was just going to say that it's interesting that Aaron said that, like how it changes, because I think that is really, that really resonates with me. Like I did, I'm into Toronto and I did a year at Legal Aid Ontario in just detention work. And it was super all consuming, really intense. And then I have done almost no detention reviews since I stopped that one-year contract. And I'm now doing three days a week at the legal clinic in Vancouver on gender violence matters. I'm loving the gender violence files. I get, find them really you know, exciting and, and satisfying to help women find a path back to immigration status when they hadn't before. Um, and I assume there's going to be some sort of timeline on that as well, that I'm not going to be doing that for 30 years. So so you're like agency them back into status? Yeah, so there's a lot of family violence temporary residence permits right, or agencies or right. um but uh it is like I don't think that if you know my practice five years ago I probably would have said like I want to do the big cases. Right. And now I'm like very content helping people <laughs> with their very specific right in front of them immediate problem you know, and, and, and being a part of remedying that. So it does, I think it's, and I think it's okay to shift and change. And as things in home life and in the world around us shift and change, what we need out of work is going to shift and change. And I find like, even with whatever issue you're doing, sometimes what's been important for me is not trying to do it all. So when I'm doing a complex litigation piece, what I've been doing more and more is saying, I'm going to do this piece for you, but I can't be everything for you. And the cases Hmm. where I have tried to do the agency, the ministerial relief, the PRA, the federal court, the litigation, those are the ones that burn me the most. And so now if I'm doing a complex litigation case, there are other people at the firm who are taking different pieces or um, even at a different firm and there so that there are built-in boundaries. I see. So you want to pick a discrete topic and make that the focus for this particular thing. And then, um, you know, just to kind of compartmentalize the part that you're working on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about for you, Camel? Do you have like, do you move around a lot in terms of what your focus is? Uh, I think for me, uh, because I did a lot of work with an anti-violence organization in BC and was involved in a three-year project, and I didn't want to see that project become a dust collector. It became my mission to see some of the recommendations happen, and that was that expedited stuff for TRP and and HNCs. So that took 10 years kept going at it, kept going at it. And it's an area I'm passionate about and I continue to seek reforms and modifications. So that's something that I kind of feel like that's my little piece where I need to make a difference as much as I can. And then it's also um, at this point, because I think I'm the most senior one here, is taking things that will bring a systemic change as well in litigation. So I am involved outside of immigration with an action that's uh, challenging legal aid for women fleeing violence with the intersectionality issue. And I find it fascinating. I never did an intervener application before. It was the most nerve wracking thing I'd ever done, but it was so satisfying. And that goes to trial next year. But it's, again, it aligns with the type of work I've been doing. But I also enjoy duty counsel and was got back into that when the two Tamil ships came into BC. And that was, uh, that was a crazy time. 
just like bizarre, bizarre, and then did that for a number of years. And I think for the last few years, I've slowed down the duty council stuff because I've done enough. I felt like I trained my juniors said, here you go, go for it. So now I'm kind of coming back. And so I've kind of done what Laura did. You know, you're like, okay, I've done it. Now I, I move back a bit and I'll go back into it. So I am shifting other areas and I am being very strategic about the kind of cases I'm taking on, being more mindful about what I'm hoping to achieve. What about you, Erin? I think you sort of talked to this one already. You sort of said that, yeah, I think you're the one that started this whole um, this whole line of conversation, actually, now that I think about it. It is. And I mean, coming back to taking on some of the systemic issues. Hmm. Uh, Kamaljeet, the fact that you did that for 10 years, I can't even imagine. Um, I've been pushing for just a couple years and I'm exhausted because you just keep hitting walls because you're now dealing with it on a different level. I feel like at this point in our careers, we understand how to deal with this in the immigration legal practice. But to step out of that into potentially political avenues and pushing for advocacy levels, that I actually find even more exhausting because I feel like I hit walls so much more quickly and I don't necessarily know what the next step is. I don't know. Okay, so this is not my end goal. Who do I take it to next? How do we deal with this next step? So one one thing impressive. I have on my to-do list. So I've got like my my to-do list that's organized by my immediate priority, like in within the next 30-day priority, decisions that are pending that might come back. And I've got like my last page is filled with um, systemic issues that have been parked where we've got arguments drafted and they, they went away or we've got things we want to challenge. And so that's something I come back to every once in a while. But I find like starting and because I was in sole practice for a couple of years and then I joined with with Peter and I found it very kind of inspiring to see the arc of some of the longer cases that he had going for a while where you you see you know off after the third refused JR of a negative agency application that you finally get it approved and so I think you know it, it can be exhausting but working with other people um or same thing, like where I've, I've taken cases from other lawyers where I'm, who are in practice for a lot longer than me, and they've been ongoing for a long time, and you do eventually see a success. I think that can be very empowering and, and motivating, but knowing yeah. you have to park it sometimes for a while and come back to it. I think what you just said about success. I did team up recently on, on a systemic issue, and it's neat to try it. It mm-hmm. didn't land where we wanted it to land, but still. It's nice to join forces and tackle issues as well, I think, as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, Camel G, we're going to try that again. We we did a, a JR leave application of, what was it, using humanitarian and compassionate discretion? Um, well, family class dependence, I think, right? Overseas. Yeah. 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 I forget exactly what the issue was but now that we are More energy. I mean, it's exhausting sometimes. You, you see these systemic issues and you're like, God to be addressed we need to tackle this but sometimes mm. one person show is hard so it's good mm. to team up and brain or either brainstorm or bring on and strategize and bring on one or two lawyers and do it mm-hmm. I have to say that I don't think I actually have a brain for strategic litigation I mean I was doing strategic stuff when I was 
with the caregiver work, but that's because that was all that I was doing and I was not for profit and I was doing it for close to a decade. And so in that way, the patterns were able to arise, like there was less, like I wasn't looking to run a business. I wasn't looking, you know, like I was doing it all on a, and so in that way, I was able to kind of mobilize the forces. I had like very, I had the ability to focus. I had such a broad base of information in terms of like, I could speak to thousands of applications in the same sector, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but when I'm just practicing on my own, I, you know, I, from time to time will contact Erica and be like, Hey, what is this about a 16? What's going on here? You know, and we'll start musing about like, have you seen this or why are they refusing overseas claims by Syrian refugees? You know, and we'll start strategizing about this. Like, is this something that needs to be come at with a different, you know, like, and we'll um, be talking about sort of stuff that has more broad, like far reaching um, consequences. But as a sole practitioner, it's very hard because I mean, I'm not a sole practitioner, but nobody else in my firm does litigation in the same way that I do. And so it sort of feels like in some ways it's um, it's it's a sole sole practice. And so, but to sort of think about how do you deal with this from a more far reaching perspective, if you're not collaborating with other colleagues or talking about how these things work, I think that um, Erica and Aaron, your firm is really set up for that. But I think that that is pretty standard, at least on the West Coast. I'm not, you know, aware, maybe on the East Coast, there are other firms that are set up like that, or elsewhere in the country. But the idea for me of like, okay, how do we address some of these broader issues um, is really kind of a new concept to me. And I'm really on a steep learning curve about it, which is why, um, you know, I, I keep mentioning it on the podcast and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to do that. But um, yeah, I don't know. How do you guys come at these sorts of things? I mean, I know, I mean, I've heard from you, Erica and Aaron about this uh, a fair bit, but I, I'm just interested, uh, you know, if, if, if others have things that are like, do you keep it on a to-do list? Are you like, this is stuff that, um, that I want to get at some way. I'm looking for a test case. I don't, I actually don't understand how it works. Yeah. I mean, taking on additional work, like advocacy, strategic litigation, a lot of this, you know, whether it's sitting on CBA or Carl or doing pro bono litigation, that is something that for my mental health, when my kids are little, I have just put on a back burner and I've had to be a little bit more protective of my time outside of my work. So I was really active in Carl for a bit. And then I like told some people like, if I do not quit, I give you permission to quit for me. Like I'm signing over volunteer power of attorney to you. Like, please don't yeah. allow me in the Zoom meetings like for my own well-being. So, I mean, for sure, I have a list of things that uh, I would like to see one day change. And I feel like same with like going in and out on different areas of the law. I feel like different times in my life, I have different capacity for, you know, for, you know, sitting in a lot of strategic planning meetings or, you know, thinking I could do this pro bono because it's an issue I care about. Um, but I'm trying <laughs> to be more intentional with my volunteer hours and to be a little bit more protective of my that makes a lot of sense and work time. Yeah. I mean, one of the things is that we go into this idea immediately of pro bono. 
Mm-hmm. And yes, there are probably things that must go down that route. But I mean, I think for our own mental health, our own well-being, we can also think about where we can get funding from. Uh, you know, legal aid here in British Columbia, they're willing to go pretty far out there if they're the right case with the right legal issues that really will move things forward. And I think that can help. It certainly doesn't, it it turns it a little bit more back into the job aspect of your life rather than the volunteer aspect of your life. Because we only have so much time to volunteer. Yeah. And that's something that I would really advocate for because we really need more separation. We have so many things to do, so a few hours in a week. So if we can move it a little bit more onto our nine to five day, we have more space for it. But from- not everybody has BC legal aid. Sorry, I'm too used to interrupting Aaron when we talk back and forth one time. <laughs> I don't mean to interrupt. Partnership, um, yeah. <laughs> For me, it it tends to be this kind of like confluence of things that I'm trying to like break apart as you're asking that question, which is like, it's the right client that comes to me. It's a community that I I see it as being a bigger issue when I I happen to be venting about it. All of a sudden, someone else will say, oh, they have this issue, too. And you'll, you'll realize that it's it's more than just this client before you. And then sometimes it's, you know, the anger that you talk about that this is really the issue that tips me over at that time. And then I also have capacity for it. So I am usually only doing one or two kind of strategic litigation things at a time. The rest, I'll, I'll have spousal sponsorships, I'll have oh, wow. HNCs, I'll have some easy things um, that I can be moving forward. And then with the strategic litigation, it's kind of like over an arc where I'll build the framework for the argument that I think needs to win and and I'll have an understanding of why I think this is right. And then it's, it's kind of an, almost like a, it's like a creative endeavor to then try to um, finesse it in a way where you think you could win with it. And so for me, that kind of takes me out of some of the client work where it becomes more of a a creative approach and I get it. And I carve out time for myself for that. So it, but it's this whole perfect little mixture of things where, and I've worked with a lot of different, I think everyone here at some point over one of these issues where I think I happen to be venting to one of you. And then it turns out that Oh, you're facing the same issue. Okay, like mm-hmm. that means this let's is a exchange thing. memos. Let's go for it. Yeah, that exactly. Gives, that gives me so much energy when when there's other people involved in it, um, and and seeing the same issues. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a, a total outside of the kind of flow of our conversation thing, but um, I'm curious, Laura, because you've worked both East Coast and West Coast, but like here, you know, it's like, oh, that's something interesting. Should we, hey, I have this memo that I wrote and this blah, 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 and we'll share it. And, you know, we're all just talking about stuff. Does the same sort of thing happen on the East Coast when you're working on something like this? Oh, like 110%. People are so friendly in Toronto. It it is shocking to me. Yeah. Oh, that's I, cool. People like you know, from the the school to the other colleagues, like everyone has been absolutely exceptionally warm and collaborative that's out awesome. here. So I think it is really a it is nationwide that people that's are cool. willing are willing to share. I do think uh, for a lot of litigation and board work, though, Toronto lawyers have it worse. Like honestly. 
the board, the CBSA, it, it seems like things are harder in Toronto. So I think the road to burnout <laughs> might be shorter. Mm-hmm. I think we hear a lot of negative things about the um, the section in in Ontario. I think that that comes a lot from the corporate side. I think the litigation side is probably pretty similar across the country. But um, I've heard a lot about that. That actually practicing before the board on the East Coast is is pretty harsh. I yeah. mean, I started my practice in Toronto. Mm, I was right. so happy when I got to Vancouver, and I was like. <laughs> They engage the CBSA officer engaged with me. They talked to me. That mm. was phenomenal. Yeah. But and now you have that anxiety when every once in a while one of your files is transferred to the tribunal in Toronto. You're like, oh, back to Toronto. Wow. And it's not necessarily that the outcome is different. It's that I agree. the procedure for getting to that outcome right. is different. Mm-hmm. The experience. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And so it's like, okay. So to back to my clients, we're going to prep a little bit more. No. Yeah. Um, I know you're the one asking questions, Deanna, but I was really curious with this. No, please. I wanted to to hear what people think of uh, self-care. I feel like that's like, you know, the law society and everyone is like, oh, all these self-care seminars. And I'd love, other than, you know, talking in community, I'd love to hear how people take care of themselves or their thoughts on I feel like I can't go to a single more one more self-care seminar where I'm told to meditate and (laughs) I was going to ask a similar question of like I I was using the word boundaries and I'm like what does that mean to people like what Mm. there's so many buzzwords and then it's like well how do you actually put this into practice Mm. for me I have like two that are like um my two kind of go-to which is that my daughter really frankly is like a total bullshit detector. Like if I tell her that I'm disconnected and I'm not, she's just like, no, you're not, you know, like she just like, she can tell if I'm still in work brain, you know? And so she calls it that I'm offline, you know, and Mm -hmm. offline means online with work brain. And so um, it's like, um, and you know, like there's something about that when I disconnect because she actually like she's a very like politically minded kid she like she believes in the same political ideals that I do but at the same time she's 13 she doesn't want to talk politics you know and so when she looks at me and she's like oh you're worried about stuff stop we're playing now you know and so for me it's a pretty that's a one the other one is my dog's And like, honestly, like my dogs just want to give love. And I have two dogs and I have two bunny rabbits. And when I go home and they're there and they want to be with me, they just want mom to be there and just like give love. And if I am tense and stressed, my dogs are insane. And when I chill, they are just calm, you know? And so like, they are like, um, they're like the litmus test of whether I'm, bringing my work crap home. Mm. And so I don't know how they do it, but they're like, they're empaths. All, all of my animals and my child are empaths. And so somehow they're like, it's like you could apply some thing to my skin and it tells me whether or not I have, I have left it 
put it down for the day. Um, and I get like, it's like a thermometer. I can, it tells me. I think one important thing that some of these seminars often miss is that like self-care isn't a destination or, you know, like boundaries, you're not just going to get the stuff in order and then all of a sudden it's all going to be better. Like it's such an organic shifting process and every day what you need might be different. Totally. And you, it, it's like something that you need to constantly be bringing yourself back to in terms sure. of um, like setting boundaries, for example, that that can be something that becomes very rigid. And if you're too hard with your boundaries, they can in and of themselves become a problem. So you need this like flexibility along with boundaries in, in the right way. And you need to constantly be bringing yourself back to the things that you enjoy and prioritizing those as well. Because sure. um, yeah, yeah, for me, it's like, it's my dog. It's, it's making sure that I've committed to do a hike with friends or to go running or I, I've set a time where I'm going bouldering or, or something where it's impossible for me to work so that I, totally. I have to prioritize time for myself. Being out in the woods is like a major one too. like going out and like, like forest bathing, you know, like being surrounded by nature in the summer. I was swimming like at least twice a week in the ocean, you know, that was a huge one. You don't uh, have to stop. I went swimming in Lake Ontario this morning. No, no you did not. Zero degrees out. You did not. Zero degrees in the lake. Oh yeah. my God, Laura, you're like hard. I started do I started doing it, and I'm like very obsessed with it because I promise you, you cannot think about work when you're in a three. I am sure that lake. is true. You can only think about breathing. There is. Oh my God. So, that I'm so well, sure that's, that's true. That's my new hobby. Oh my God. I go floating sometimes. I don't know if anybody has ever done that, but I think floating is an amazing thing. You go like into a, like a dark. Oh, the tanks. Tank and it's like total sensory deprivation and you float there for 70 minutes. I find that amazing. One of the things that ties back to the original topic is I think I forgot a lot of things that brought me joy. Mm. You get so busy. Yes, I definitely feel that. And I mean, I'm coming to you right now from Tofino. So I'm doing a little bit of the forest bathing. I'm doing a little bit of all these things, but you just have to stop. It's like, however busy you are, it doesn't matter. You have to take a day, a weekend, a longer weekend, and make these little times for yourself. And I mean, the rule coming into this was, we're not even going to talk about work. Yeah. Like, that's it. With the concession that she was going to work this morning and I was going to do a podcast. But yeah, spending time now actually trying to rebuild what you truly enjoy. Like yeah. just take a bit of a litmus test of yourself. Are you in a good place? What's causing it? And for me, the commute, coming back to that, I walk. So mm. I go outside and I realized how much that does for me. Yeah. Just that process. But yeah. What about you, Kamalji? You've been very quiet. I'm listening to you all and I'm trying to. She look. likes the salon, I can tell you. She's always like getting. No, no I, you I, don't. I was like this. <laughs> no, but you get your nails done, no? No, no. I do not. I don't like nail polish on my nails. Oh. I don't. Yeah. No, I'm not a nail salon. Person. Uh, why did I think that? I do go uh, make workout a part of my routine. Mm-hmm. When I had my fourth kid, I got quite sick during the delivery. And it was 
pretty bad. So then I made a decision that, geez, I got to be around. I got four kids, so I've really got to look after myself. So exercise uh, is a big part of that. And girlfriend time, honestly, just we call it Friday. We get together and we just, I don't drink. They, she has, uh, there's a two of them. They have wine, I'll have tea. And we just talk. And in fact, even in the mornings at my office, I've had the same legal assistant for 27 years. We will yeah. sit, have a cup of tea, and we'll probably um, probably uh, go about complaints about our husbands or whatever, you know, just, just chit-chatting. I've got my son getting married next year. So I've got sort of these, I call them lifelines as well. And, and, and some of them are colleagues. Some of them are, you know, just friends I've grown up with. And another is a legal assistant and just being able to have that because as much as children bring joy, mm. all of them can really wear you down. Mm. So it's nice to disconnect from them as well to really for know sure. do things for me. And I've gotten a little bit of guilt from the older one from that. Oh, you're away again and you missed my birthday. I'm like, buddy, you're 26 now. You know, when when you hit a milestone, we'll, oh we'll all be there. But right. Yeah. Really saying that. I don't want to have that guilt anymore. And it's okay for me to look after myself and my clients. I'll do the best I can. And then, and finding space for myself amongst everyone else. Yeah. It's not easy. It's not easy. And sometimes just going into my room, closing my door, being away from everyone is the best thing. (laughs) Totally. Well, that's the thing. I don't ever take time for myself. That's why I started floating, you know, because it's like just solitude is so is so important for me, you know, and I just like, I don't ever think to take it. I'm always like, oh, I've got all these, you know, people in my house, like, hey, or people are animals, you know, like, but to actually, and I, I also just, I think that it's a moving target, as you said, Erica, you know, that one moment it might be that I need to be swimming. Sometimes I need to just go for a walk. Like I just, um, the other, there are a couple of other things that arose as you all were talking. One of them is that like, sometimes I'll just get to work and I'm just like, I, I feel stupid today. And then it's like, okay, so then don't work, just yeah. leave. That's yeah. the reason we went into business or, you yeah. know, like, um, that like, um, I sometimes find that I'm like pushing against a closed door and, um, you know, being very, very unforgiving, you know, it's like, what's wrong with me today? Why can't I think? And it's like, you just can't. So stop, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and, um, and just not listening to the signals that you're sending yourself. Like sometimes an entire week will be like that. And it's like, but I don't feel like I can enjoy myself. So I feel like I'm wasting the time. Well, sometimes you just need to sleep. Sometimes you need to like, it not, doesn't always look like fun. Sometimes it's just like whatever, you know, like, oh, but I should be exercising. I should be eating better. I should be do- like, like it's, it's not always something like all great and exciting. Like it just, it's going to change. And it's just, it's just about, as we said earlier, just listening in and figuring out what it is that, that you need. It doesn't always have to be something super glamorous. Yeah. And I work less, I work less than I did when I was a young associate. Like, I think I did so many hours out of fear, like when I was young, that Mm-hmm. I didn't know when to stop on an agency or a refugee claim or uh, on, you know, or even if I'd be done the consult, I'd still be thinking about it. And yeah, I am more aggressive about just working less. I'm sure you've all had that experience where you like, you sit, you sat and you've listened to your client and you've heard the whole story. 
And then you walk away and you don't work for a day or maybe even two. And then you come back and you're like, oh, I've just figured out what this claim is about. Or I've mm-hmm. just understood what is the part of this agency that's actually going to work, you know? And uh, sometimes when you're like, you kind of, you can't see the forest for the trees when you're just like in it so much, you know? I think that's yeah. And I mean, I think Erica said at the beginning, like, I, I would like to keep doing this. <laughs> So I'd like to keep doing this for, you know, as long as I'm physically and mentally able. So if that means some months or years, I at, like work differently or less or more in some areas and less in others, it's, it's just going to be like that. Sorry, Kemal, I interrupted you. No, no, I think that's smart when we say, you know, well, I need to just sit on this and we don't need to, it's, again, it's that guilt for some reason. We just figure as lawyers, okay, we need to be sitting at the office, work, 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 work to to justify being here. But I think it's important to just, if your brain is numb and it's not able to do what it needs to do, you need to segue, do something else, come back at it later, right? I think that's healthy. Um, But yeah, no, I've been, like I said, 33 years and I'm still doing it and I'm still enjoying it. And I think it is because I have reduced the amount of time I spend. I also did weave in mediation into my practice like not meditation mediation so I go and see other lawyers and help them resolve their problems and it's nice to see conclusion and end and not heaviness and stuff I have to take back and I found that's been really I really enjoy that I don't do a ton of it but it gets me out of the office it's a whole different way of using my brain and interacting with people so that's something I knew I bought into my practice probably nine years ago Wow. The amount of time, and and maybe it's, I think it's just part of the learning curve. And we see this when when there's new lawyers that we're working with, but like the amount of time and energy I've wasted when I should have taken a break is I think one of the most important parts of the learning curve. You you sit there and you just, you think you need to make it perfect and you need to keep going Mm. at it, but really taking a break and then when you come back to it, it, it is, you, you got an aha moment, something, something distilled for yourself. And yeah, totally. breaks are so important. <laughs> I know. I just know that, like, especially when I'm doing federal court work, when I'm just like writing and rewriting and rearranging a federal, like a memo for <laughs> federal court, it's just like, okay, just walk away. <laughs> just walk away. I want to be really no, mindful I, of everybody's I like time. Hamilton, oh. too, that there's like 24 years into practice. You're like, I'm going to add something so different, right? It uses a completely different skill set. So yeah. I love mm-hmm. that. It's pretty mm-hmm. wild. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's been good. Yeah. It's so amazing <laughs> to see all of you powerful women on the screen. Like, just- yeah, this has been fun. Yeah, totally. Yeah incredible to see and be amongst you all yeah for sure thank, thank you all for joining it's been really great oh sorry I don't want to cut you off I was just going to say as a final comment it's this meeting and even just coming together yes we're we'll talking about some of the stresses we have but it also underlies all of the successes and that's uh-huh. what keeps us here and that's what invigorates us and I mean in our office we have a habit of sharing them so if some amazing long fought agency gets one, that team of people will post it being like, we got it Aww. just to keep everybody going and bring it all together back to the team that got us there. I love that. 
Yeah, I mean, that is another thing. That's a really good um, ending comment because like, that's another thing about working in this area is that your successes are private. Nobody gets mm. to hear about them. Your refugee decisions are not public record. Like it's just, and again, that's not that we're looking for accolades or anything like that, but um, you know, um, I don't know. It's, it's between you and your client and that's great. But I think that a lot of other businesses, you kind of, part of what motivates people is that they reach this kind of success. They got all sorts of feedback, whereas our kind of success is between us and our clients. And that's wonderful, but it's just, it's just, it's kind of, I mean, maybe it's the same. I don't know. It just feels somehow a little bit different that um, even amongst our colleagues, um, we know one another because we know that we're in the area, but um you know, there's something a little bit lonely about it. Like I've never actually seen another person's refugee claim. And so when I'm working on mine, I'm like, I hope that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like, you know, we are all kind of having to create it in a vacuum. And in that, that's, um, you know, you have to develop your own sense of like fortitude, knowing that you're doing it right, that you're doing the best thing for your client without having had that same um the sense of like reinforcement that you would otherwise get um I never got trained in how to write it like yes I've attended seminars but again it's it's much more you have to be kind of self-made and so um it is nice to be able to kind of get together as a group like this and just be like good job everybody you know like we're doing it we're we're doing great yay yes <laughs> yeah, yeah and I'm, I, I I echo that like I feel like how wonderful that in a system that can be so cruel and difficult, there's like incredibly bright, fierce women just, I don't know, I'm probably not allowed to swear on a podcast, sorry. I already <laughs> like, did, so you're good. <laughs> doing it, like actually yes. like, and making it, you know, and making like policy change and legal change and representing, cli- like doing the daily slog of representing clients, like in the day-to-day applications, so. Yeah. And not getting burnt out and not, not I mean, yeah. not, not being, not being discouraged from continuing to do the work and not turning into angry trolls and just like continuing to do the compassionate work. Um, good on us. <laughs> and I think seeing that, yeah, it keeps me going. Like I've definitely, there have been times where I felt burnt out and seeing and thinking about other people who are still doing it and um, feeling like you're in community with it has been such a big part of keeping going. So maybe yeah, that I was is like, part pour of one our... out for Barb Jackman being the like true light of <laughs> yeah. <you know>? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The true light of how we could keep just keep going for decades and decades. I do think that that has to be part of our like um our what did you call it, Erica? Like our our wellness thing, you know, like that actually seeing other like there has to be like some kind of shared experience of being like, okay, you know, like encouraging one another. And it's like, you know, um, there is something about this kind of area of practice where like, you know, I don't know. I I think it's nice to just be able to kind of like huddle together sometimes and be like, (laughs) yeah, just for a little dopamine hit. Yeah. Everybody gets a pat on the back. Yeah. (laughs) All right, my dears, thank you I don't know, I don't you know how to do the little Zoom emojis. Yes. <laughs> I don't know either. Oh, there you did. Good <laughs> <Cool>. job. <laughs> <laughs>
Now this will turn into a weekly coffee <laughs> drink. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> nice Let's to do see it. you all. <laughs> nice to see you all Absolutely. too. Nice you too. Bye everyone. Have a Tuesday. Yeah. Bye. 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 Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.